Hey there, welcome to Livewire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. We've got quite a varied show for you this week, starting with an interview with the actor Connor Ratliff. He has spent over 20 years now trying to figure out why Tom Hanks fired him from the HBO series Band of Brothers for having uh, what he was told were dead eyes, according to Tom Hanks. Then we're going to talk to the uh, brilliant Mickey Kendall about her book, Hood Feminism, which proposes a more inclusive, intersectional version of the women's movement. And finally, we're going to hear some music from Faye Webster off her latest album, I Know I'm Funny, Ha Ha, which she is, by the way, but she's also great at music, which is the important part here, which you'll hear for yourself if you stick around for this week's episode, which we sure hope you will. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. How you doing? I'm doing pretty well, pretty well. Excited that it's time for another round of station location identification mm. examination. Are you ready for this? I'm ready. Okay, this is where I give you a little quiz on a place where Livewire is on the radio. You try to guess the place I'm talking about. This city is home to the oldest football stadium in college football. It's got a capacity of almost 103,000. It's also got a presidential library and a museum. And... This is the part that I feel you might actually know something about. The Dixie Chicken, which is a restaurant bar that claims to sell more beer per square foot than any other bar in the world. Oh, my gosh. I know. The, I don't know the name of the town. It's, it's where Texas A&M is, right? That's is right. College Station. College Station. I'm college giving, Station. Yes. I, college <laughs> Station. You're incredible. Was it really the Dixie Chicken that, that tipped your brain? No. You know, I lived in Austin for a while, and that stadium, I remember they would say something about how the UT Stadium was the biggest, but the A&M Stadium was the oldest. That is amazing. You never cease to impress me. That's right. The Aggies, <laughs> where we are on the air at K-A-M-U, down there in College Station, Texas. So a big Woo! hello to everyone listening on K-A-M-U and everywhere else in the country. Uh, should we get rolling with the show? Let's do it. All right, take it away. From PRX, it's Livewire. This week... Podcaster and actor Connor Ratliff. 
It really is so much fun just using it as a window to kind of get to the topic of rejection and failure and regret. And writer Mickey Kendall. Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I like living right there in that spot. With music from Faye Webster, I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Livewire, Luke Burbank. Hey, thank you so much, Elena Passarello. <laughs> Dixie Chicken. Thanks, everyone tuning in in College Station, Texas, and all over the country. Ow. We have a really fun, interesting show for you in store this week. Of course, we asked the Livewire listeners a question. We asked, what's the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? Mm-hmm. That's because Connor Ratliff, who's going to be on the show, has spent <laughs> like over 20 years trying to figure out why Tom Hanks said he had dead eyes. That's right. Uh, so we want to hear <laughs> from the listeners, what is some impactful stuff you've heard about yourself? We're going to read those answers coming up in a few minutes. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Elena, what's the best news you heard this week? Okay, well, um, not great news that we, of course, lost television legend Betty White just a couple of weeks ago, just a few weeks shy of her 100th birthday. But I think she timed it. I think she wanted us to spend all of New Year's Eve toasting her. Yeah. <laughs> it just was perfect. Once again, perfect timing, Betty White. I saw a tweet that said, you know, we're not playing Auld Lang Syne at midnight. We're playing no. thank you for being a friend. That's right. That's right. <laughs> well played, Betty. I love her so much. I, I, I sometimes defy myself to find something on the internet about her that doesn't delight me. Everything from her career, starting when she was in local LA television, all the way to when she was doing, you know, shows in her 80s and 90s and hosting Siren Live, always a delight. And this delighted me too. In Mineral Point, Wisconsin, which is a very small town in Wisconsin, uh, I believe people that live there refer to themselves as pointers. Okay. Uh, There's a brew pub called the Commerce Street Brew Pub. And because Betty White's uh, late husband, Alan Ludden, who was her Mm -hmm. co-host on the 60s TV show Password, they were married for 20 years, because he himself is a pointer, they Ah. decided to name one of their concoctions after Ms. Betty White. They named, it's called the Blonde Betty, is a beer that was named in 2019 for Betty in honor of her 97th birthday. Well, Betty White has not set foot in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, for 40 years, (laughs) despite this honor. But what they did, they've set up this thing. It's so cute. They have a a big, huge chalkboard in the brew pub where if you want to buy somebody who's not present a drink, so if they ever do walk in the door, they'll have a beer waiting for them, you can do that. They have like a pay-it-forward system. I've seen bars like that. I find it so charming where you can just be like, I left one for Barry. Yeah, and it could be somebody who lives nearby or, you know, like Johnny Depp was on there apparently. But Hmm. nobody has more beers bought for them ahead of time than Betty White. She had like (laughs) 40 going into the last week of the year last year. And when news of her passing started going around, people started adding to that that tab. So now there are like 110 free beers bought in Betty White's name, Betty White's beer bought in Betty White's name on that chalkboard. It's like $565 worth of credit in her honor. 
And you know what they're going to do. The Commerce Street Brew Pub in Mineral Point, Wisconsin, is going to donate that money to a local animal shelter. And if you know anything about Betty White, you know that that is the best way to pay tribute to her, even more than naming a beer after her, giving money uh, to a place that takes care of cats, dogs, and other critters is like her life's work. That is really beautiful. Also, yeah. I mean, towards the end, I'm sure Betty could have only drank about 100 beers. Yeah. <laughs> so that would have been way more than she needed what was on the chalkboard. So this is better for everyone. That it's the, true. Uh, the animals of Wisconsin are going to be well taken care of. Speaking of taking care of animals, the best news story that I saw this week takes us to Australia, where <laughs> there was a newly minted Australian lifeguard mm. uh, named Lillian B. Young. The B is B-E-E, by the way. I know that sounds like a Chuck Berry song or something, but... She's 17 years old. This is her first summer as an Australian lifeguard. Because it's summer there right now, right? Right, exactly. Okay. So it's day three of Lillian's initial week as a lifeguard. And uh, she and her fellow lifeguard look over and they see a um, kangaroo that's on these rocks, kind of really close to where the waves are crashing. What they think happened was that the kangaroo had been in some kind of bushes, and then some fishermen had come along, and it scared the kangaroos. Uh. So the kangaroo jumped out onto the rocks to get away from the fishermen, but then a wave came and, like, took the kangaroo out to sea. Oh, no. And everybody is kind of freaking out, and Lillian springs into action. She Springs grabs her into wrist. action? <laughs> Sorry. I really teed that one up. I'm sorry. I meant to say she bounced into action. Yeah. That's my bad. <laughs> she hopped to it. She really did. Okay. She she got on her rescue surfboard, which is a real thing apparently, paddled out to the kangaroo. And the kangaroo was, as you might imagine, pretty disoriented, pretty freaked out. She said she didn't want to pull the kangaroo onto her surfboard because A, she didn't want to scare it further and B, she wasn't sure no. the, what the kangaroo was going to do to her. Yeah. So she just kind of surfed slash helped along the kangaroo to help direct it back towards the shore to get back, first of all, into water where it could stand up Uh and then to get it through some of the waves. Because even when it was touching the sand, the waves were knocking it over. It was getting really confused. She stayed out there with the kangaroo, just helping shepherd it back to, you know, the part of the beach where it was out of the water, kind of shakes itself off and then just bolts. (gasps) It was adorable. And I mean, what a first week. Have you ever had a first week on any job? Where something that exciting happens? Uh, no, never. No. Although my first week of Livewire was pretty great. I wish I would have saved a kangaroo during it, though. <laughs> I, <didn't, laughs> I think I just punned and then went home. <laughs> well, the fact that uh, Lillian B. Young is uh, taking care of all... She's guarding all forms of life down there in Australia. That is the best news that I heard this week. <laughs> Hey, speaking of the best news, the Best News Podcast (gasps) is now its own weekly show. We actually put our first episode out this week. Make sure you check for that on the Livewire feed, uh, wherever it is that you listen to your podcasts. All right, let's welcome our first guest on over to the show. He is an actor that you might have seen in The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel or maybe Search Party. Uh, I can tell you the place you haven't seen him. The 2001 HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. Uh, Why not? Because Tom Hanks fired him the day before he was supposed to start filming for having, uh, the story goes, dead eyes, according to uh, Tom Hanks. Well, 20 plus years later, Connor Ratliff has turned that coal of rejection into a diamond of hilarity (laughs) through his podcast, 
Dead Eyes, which looks back at the whole sordid affair. Let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation with Connor um, and his, I don't know, possibly Dead Eyes, uh, last February. <laughs> Connor Ratliff, welcome to the Livewire House Party. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, all right, so let's uh, go back to the sort of uh, origin point for, for this podcast, which is that you were about how old? I was uh, 24, mm. I think, at the time. And, and you were living in England, and yeah. uh, this HBO series, Band of Brothers, is going to be filming in England, and you audition for this role of, it's like Private Zelensky, I think, and you book... <laughs> The job you have been hired to be in this huge production, and even better, you're going to be in an episode that is directed by Tom Hanks. Where did things start to go wrong? Well, just one, for a while there, it was just one piece of good news after another, and then uh, and then all of a sudden, uh, I got a call from my agent saying that uh, you've got to get down to London immediately. It was the day before I was supposed to start filming. I got a phone call from an assistant in my agent's office telling me. Uh, there's been a problem. Uh, Tom Hanks has seen your audition tape, and he's having second thoughts. He thinks you have dead eyes. <laughs> and, like, what's going <laughs> through your mind in, in that moment when you hear that? Um, I just, I didn't know what to make of it because it was such a small role, and it was a character who said very little. <laughs> and it wasn't an emotional scene, so it wasn't like... Uh, it wasn't a, a thing where I could really, you know, pop my eyes out and fill them with emotion, you know? Right. Uh, anything, any acting choice I could have made in my re-audition to emphasize my eyes would have also <laughs> been utterly disqualifying uh, <laughs> as far as how distracting it would be in the scene. So basically you had this role booked. You've been hired to play this character, Zelensky. And yeah. you're like told your family about it, and like I told any, everybody, anybody, I told everybody, and everybody, yeah. <laughs> and then every passerby. Tom Hanks is going to direct me. I have lines. <laughs> uh, yeah, and I was still paid, which some people hear that because you know the contracts were signed and everything. You know, some people hear that and they say, "Well, what are you complaining about? You got paid for it." But I would have given up the money to have the the getting the role is the harder part mm -hmm. when you're a young actor you can right. find some money somewhere mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there are other ways to make money it's it's hard to get those you know when you're starting out to get those early credits that then you know sort of legitimize you mm -hmm. and um yeah and and then it was you know it was over a year later when the the it finally started airing on HBO and and by the, when you look at the scene there's even fewer lines <laughs> like the final edit <laughs> yeah, he says his name, and then he says he can go get a bacon sandwich for uh, Ron Livingston's character, and he leaves the room, and he comes back, and he leaves. You know, it's just it's it goes by in a blink. Yeah, uh, it's definitely not like I in one of the episodes, as, as you probably heard, I, I uh, tracked down the actor who mm -hmm. replaced me and talked to him about. It. He, of course, had no idea. He had had a whole separate experience that day. What I didn't realize was as I was reauditioning. Uh, there was a room full of other actors that were basically in the on-deck circle. They were waiting to come in and replace me. This is kind of a big reveal on the podcast. Oh, by the way, we're talking to Connor Ratliff uh, about his podcast, Dead Eyes. Uh, this is the Livewire house party. Yeah, it's a big reveal in the podcast that basically they were making sure that they had someone they thought was a sufficient replacement for you before yeah. they officially <laughs> took yeah. the role away from Which you. 
which totally makes sense. I'm also incredibly grateful that they went to the trouble of hiding that room full of actors from me. Mm-hmm. That was considerate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's bad enough when you're auditioning for a part that you haven't booked yet and you see the other actors who are kind of similar to you in the room. Um, that That is in itself kind of often a negative experience, especially if you're, as I am, a character actor, because often more than once I've had the experience of going to audition for like Law & Order SVU, which <laughs> I have never booked a part on. But you're in a room when you audition for that that is also auditioning for Chicago Fire. Uh? And... <laughs> And multiple times I have auditioned for various uh, um, sex offenders on SVU. (laughs) And when you're in the room, you can tell who's going to read for the sex offender (laughs) and who is going to read for the firefighter. They are a different different type, and it's genuinely upsetting to look over and go like, oh, yeah, that guy is definitely uh, auditioning for SVU. And then realizing, like, oh, he's thinking the same thing about me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is Livewire from PRX. We're listening back to a conversation we had with Connor Ratliff last year about his podcast, Dead Eyes. Uh, we got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of probably a 501c3 they don't let me near any of the paperwork Mm -hmm. or bookkeeping and it's really better that way point is we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members and we would love it if you could join us in that right now plus there are all kinds of sweet perks including uh special discounted tickets to live recordings on-air shout outs exclusive content uh, and Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm-hmm. here to talk about is you keeping Livewire going. So head on over to livewireradio.org to see the various member levels it does not matter how much you are giving every month to Livewire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. Just remember to make Zbiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com/livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use Livewire at checkout. Zbiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee. So if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. 
remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to Zbiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are listening back to our interview with Connor Ratliff about his much-decorated podcast, Dead Eyes. We recorded this last year. Take a listen. One of the things that's so fun about this podcast is that it sort of expands out into a lot of other people, you know, John Hamm, Amy Mann, and Seth Rogen among others, talking about their experiences with kind of rejection in showbiz. Was that always your plan for this podcast or did that just kind of develop as you got into it? No, I always knew that. And that was part of why initially it was a hard sell as an idea because I think people thought, uh, uh, you know, I was told by some people like, you can't do more than three episodes about this. You'll run out of material. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I always knew that the story is very small and specific, but there are ways in which it can sort of spiderweb out into other areas. Um, even honestly, uh, with like in the case of Seth Rogen or Amy Mann, they weren't originally designed to to be in the first season. They both had reached out to me saying how much they liked the podcast. And it was only after, you know, when Amy Mann said, oh, I love this podcast and I was like, we should get you on sometime without even, and that was what caused me to remember oh, yeah. <laughs> that her album had come out a month before. And so it was all I was listening to both before and after, because her album is so much about uh, sort of failure in show business and rejection and all these things. And I had kind of buried that. I w- and and with Seth Rogen, I was like, we got to figure out a way to get you on the podcast. I'll, I'll figure out some some angle, some way to connect. And he's like, well, you know, I auditioned for Band of Brothers. I was like, oh, great, perfect. You know, <laughs> that some of these some of these connections happen without me even searching for them. You know, that's one of the things I just love about this podcast is it proves that like nonfiction storytelling is magical. That if you mm. start putting your energy toward a question about something that's real from your life or from just the lives of a bunch of people, the world will come back and deepen that for you. It's also, I have to say, a great excuse for, um, you know, I I had had Amy Mann as a guest on one of my comedy shows at UCB a couple of years earlier but the show gives me an excuse sometimes to have the kind of conversations that would be uncomfortable if you didn't have the the excuse of a podcast. Right. <laughs> uh, the question I have, uh, Connor, by the way, we're talking to Connor Ratliff about his podcast, Dead Eyes, where he's trying to figure out why it was that Tom Hanks fired him from the HBO show Band of Brothers for having dead eyes. Um, at this point, because this podcast is a real hit, it's showing up on all of these lists of best podcasts and again, a number of notable people have become fans of it and show up on the podcast. At this point, it's way better, right, that you got fired from Band of Brothers and were able to make this show? Because, I mean, Zelensky, no one's going to remember, can I get you coffee, sir, right? But this is now really sort of presenting you to a whole new group of people, right? Oh, without question. I mean, that was probably true even just when we did the pilot. Even just recording the pilot, it was so much fun. Uh, just putting it all together that if somebody came to me with, you know, a time machine and said, good news, we can go back and you can really nail that audition. I'd be like, are you crazy? 
but it really is so much fun just using it as a window to kind of get to the topic of Mm -hmm. rejection and failure and regret. I mean, this is definitely an example of how something that I took really hard when it happened, it ultimately was a character-building experience. And I wouldn't be able to do the podcast if I was seriously still harboring any uh, painful emotions Mm -hmm. about it. Comedically, the podcast starts from a position of total narcissism that I'm making everything (laughs) about me. But really the thing that makes it, that keeps it from being unlistenable is that it's it's comedically using narcissism as a window to like empathy Mm -hmm. in that like I am as interested in your story of uh, you know your dead eyes story whatever weird rejection or failure that you are either coming to terms with or already have you know put to bed long ago those stories are comforting I think Mm -hmm. and everybody's got one everybody's got one and it's also I should say there's a very limited scope to what qualifies as a dead eye story. There are truly horrible things that happen mm. in show business that are criminal and wrong, and that's not that's right. not the bracket that this podcast lands no. in. <laughs> Whereas mine was like Tom Hanks didn't do anything wrong. Perhaps at some level there was some miscommunication. Mm-hmm. I don't even know because that's part of the mystery is. Mm-hmm. Did he say, this guy's got dead eyes? I don't know about that. You know, it could have been that he said something that got mistranslated um, along a chain of five people. Mm -hmm. And by the time it reached me, it was, he thinks you have dead eyes. Um, That's part of the fun of the mystery is I would love to know if, if, if eventually down the line I'm ever able to talk to Tom Hanks and he has no memory of ever having said that. On the one hand, memory is a faulty thing, but on the other hand, it, it, it's possible that the message that got to me was not uh, something he said, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something that kind of hangs over this whole podcast is the question of, is Tom Hanks going to hear about this mm-hmm. and what is his response going to be? And a number of the people that you interview know Tom Hanks, like have his email, are friends yeah. with his wife, Rita Wilson. Uh, what have you heard uh, as far as Tom Hanks's awareness of this whole thing at this point? Well, uh, nothing direct, uh, but I, I think at this point, I, I'm if I had to bet money, I'm, I'm fairly certain that he's aware of it just because the the levels of people that I'm hearing back from who have heard about it one way or the other, I'd find it, uh, especially in a year, in a pandemic year Mm -hmm. where we've all got a lot of downtime, Mm -hmm. it would greatly surprise me. Let's just say if I was trying to keep this a secret from him, Mm -hmm. uh, I I don't think I would have succeeded. You know what I mean? Like my hope is that he would think it was funny and interesting and that it would spark his curiosity on some level. You have acted in lots of things since this incident happened with the the Tom Hanks uh, firing you from Band of Brothers. And yeah. I'm wondering, have you ever found yourself while being filmed trying to not have dead eyes? Um, I'm always trying to not have dead eyes now. Uh <laughs> No, I I mean does it does it does it factor into your performance? Do you think about it? Does it live somewhere in your brain? Not directly. You know, when 20 years go by, I really don't feel like the same person I was back then. I would say the way that it has more affected me, it's less that I think about, oh, God, I better not have dead eyes on this. Um, <laughs> back then, getting this part meant everything to me. It was the it was the center of, you know, my accomplishments. It was defining. Like, it was like, now I'm on my way. And now when I'm, you know, I'm very grateful um, 
to have like a couple of recurring parts on different TV shows that I like. But I don't put all my eggs in that basket. And obviously, I don't want to get fired from another job that I booked. Right. <laughs> um, I, I think if that happened now, I would still be bummed about it. But I wouldn't take it as such a total uh, uh, kind of condemnation of myself as a viable performer, which is, you know, it was just it was too much. It was too big a thing to have to have that kind of rejection come from what felt like such a height. Mm-hmm. And I felt so small, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like nah, it's just it was overwhelming, you know, and it's it's funny to look back at it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I'm sorry that you had to go through all of that. But we're all the beneficiaries of this yeah. really fun podcast. Dead Eyes uh, that Connor Ratliff has put together. Connor, thank you so much for uh, stopping by the Livewire House party today. Oh, it was a, hey, this was a fun party. That was Connor Ratliff of the Dead Eyes podcast right here on Livewire. Uh, the third season of Dead Eyes is currently in progress, Elena. Uh, there are going to be new episodes through March. So I guess the, the journey continues. We're trying to figure out why Tom Hanks said that. Yeah, and it's it's a great third season. I've been listening with rapt attention. Okay, good. Everybody go check that out. Hey, special thanks this episode to the Sokoloff family of Portland, Oregon. The Sokoloffs are part of the Livewire member community and are generously supporting Livewire with a donation each month, which we are very thankful for because it's how we are able to do the show. So a very big thanks to the Sokoloffs for all they've done for Livewire. This is Livewire. Of course, each week we like to ask the Livewire listeners a question. This week, considering the impact that those comments about Connor Ratliff having dead eyes had on him, (laughs) we asked the Livewire listeners, what's the most impactful thing anyone has ever said about you? Elena, you've been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? There are definitely a lot in the sort of dead eyes variety where it's not necessarily a compliment, but it does inspire you to behave in a different way or to ask certain questions. Like this one from Lindsay, who says, 20 years ago, when I was a teenager, my best guy friend told a dude who was interested in dating me that, quote, if you treat her like crap, she'll stick to you like glue. Whoa. While it hurt to hear, Lindsay says, it woke me up. It shattered what was left of my teenage insecurity. I took a hard look at myself, realized my self-worth, and moved forward a more empowered woman. Good for you, Lindsay. Yeah. All right, what's something else? This one's from Dan. Many years ago, when I was a young man, my boss told me, you could be standing there with a bus coming right at you and you'll do all these amazing ninja flips and acrobatics to get out of the way of the bus and figure out the problem. But sometimes I really wish you just weren't standing in the middle of the road in the first place. (laughs) Huh? So like you can sort of allow yourself to get into a situation that takes a real next level Uh high functioning abilities to get out of. But there's also the approach of just not, Letting yourself get into the situation where you have to do all of that stuff. Don't get into a jam. Yeah, I feel I I resemble that remark a little bit. Sometimes (laughs) sometimes I'm out in the middle of the road uh, trying to figure out how I can MacGyver my way through something that was essentially avoidable. (laughs) (laughs) I just remember from my time at Dick's Driving in Seattle, time to lean, time to clean. That's what oh. my manager was always yelling at me. <laughs> my manager, when I worked food service, was always telling me to work smarter, not harder. 
You know what I mean? Mine were just telling me to work harder because I was very lazy. <laughs> they were like, where's Luke? He's not here. <laughs> He's hiding in the 35er. We had this giant refrigerator that you kept all the hamburger patties in and things like that. And it was at 35 degrees. So it was called the 35er. Oh. And on really, really hot days, people would sometimes eat their lunch in there. I hid in the 35er for like three months. Just hoping <laughs> nobody would ever... Just trying to avoid work. It's terrible. All right, one more before we uh, move on. <laughs> I love this one from Daniel. A girl once told me that my signature animal was a seagull, but, quote, like one of those seagulls that hangs out in the Walmart parking lot. <laughs> wow. You're like a beautiful bird that's eating half of a piece of pizza right. behind a Toyota Corolla. <laughs> That's very insightful, a uh, little bit of information from that that onlooker. What do you do with that? I guess you just keep living your life as that dirty seagull. But yeah, you double what, down. What, you double yeah, down. you got it. <laughs> you, you I saw a seagull smoking a cigarette. It was Daniel. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks, Elena, for tracking those. And thanks, everyone, for writing in. Oh, we got another audience question for next week's show, which we'll read you at the end of this week. All right, let's invite our next guest over to the show. Uh, she's the author of Amazon's Abolitionists and Activists, a graphic history of women's fight for their rights. Also the New York Times bestselling book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women, a Movement Forgot. In it, she calls out the mainstream feminist movement for historically focusing on increasing privilege for a sort of few rather than supporting the basic needs of the many, particularly women of color. Uh, it's a it's a really fascinating and also challenging read. So let's take a listen to this. It's our conversation recorded with Mickey Kendall last year. Mickey Kendall, welcome to Livewire. Thank you for having me on. Ooh. Let's start with your grandmother, uh, who who you say in this book would never really self-identify as a feminist, but then you write was one of the most feminist women you ever met. Uh, what was her story? So my grandmother was born in 1924. So she had lived through the Great Depression. Jim Crow, all of these things. And she'd always had to work, right? So when she had kids, her expectation for us was that we would go to school and we would work. And she had daughters and then she had granddaughters, a couple grandsons. But what she didn't have an expectation of was that we would ever not be able to take care of ourselves. Like that was her ongoing thing, right? You need to be responsible for you. You need to take care of the people in your family. There's an entire not exactly duty, but an entire responsibility to yourself and to the community speech that goes with this. <laughs> I once told her when I was uh, 16 that I wanted to drop out of high school early and take my GED. And let me tell you, the version of the speech, <laughs> when you tell someone whose own grandmother wasn't legally allowed to read that you want to skip out on education, that version is a terrifying place. <laughs> I graduated from high school at 16 instead because I liked breathing, right? Right. But my grandmother's story was a woman who had always worked, who had seen that if you could not take care of you, the world would not take care of you, but also that there would be people around you in your community who would need a little help, need a little support. So my grandmother might babysit for a neighbor who was a single mom with a weird schedule. She might be the one, you know, sort of nudging someone along to finish their degree she just didn't identify with mainstream feminism because usually they talked about women like my grandmother as servants. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of folks might know you from this hashtag that you started, which was solidarity is for white women. 
Um, can, can you explain what uh, the thought process was behind that and what you're pushing for with that hashtag? So the thought process behind that was a response to a, we're going to say he calls himself a white male feminist. I wouldn't call him that, but this might be broadcast in a way the FCC would disapprove of. Um, <laughs> we're trying to stay on as many radio stations as possible. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a response to him admitting he had been targeting particularly uh, young women of color who were feminist voices on the internet. He confessed and then white feminists tried to get him to be quiet in the middle of his confession. And one of them said, when it was brought to her attention that here's him admitting his his sins. Why are you trying to stop him? Well, you know, I don't want things to get worse, but you, you, you just realize he's been targeting someone. He admits it. And she says, well, I know, but I never sided with him, but I had to stand in solidarity with my community and not speak up. And I said, so solidarity is for white women with you. Mm. So then I started talking about all the ways that white feminism fails to show up for black women in particular, but women of color in general and other communities. And apparently uh, several million people in 11 countries agreed with me. So there you go. Um, You've said in this book that uh, some people see you as, uh, you know, fiercely feminist and then other people, depending on who you ask, might see you as toxic. Uh, Are you comfortable in that place of, of being a person who different people have really different perceptions of? Oh, absolutely. There's a saying, um, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I like living right there in that spot. If someone is having a hard time, I'm not going to be mean to them. I'm not going to go out of my way to be nasty. But if you want to be a bully, I'm your huckleberry. I'm right here waiting for you. (laughs) Um, How exactly do you define the hood, Mickey Kendall? Um, In my case, because I grew up on the south side of Chicago, the hood is... Candy ladies and the guy that sometimes hangs around the alley and the corner boys serving and corner boys will also take your grandma's groceries upstairs for the record. But the hood could also be on a reservation. It could be the barrio. It could be the holler, right? We see a lot of low income, rural low income communities kind of ascribe to that same aesthetic of, oh, there's nothing of value there. And the thing is, it's not that the hood doesn't have answers. It's not that the people in those places don't have answers. What they don't have is resources. Mm-hmm. So the hood would be, uh, in your definition, somewhere where people are trying to survive and are being deprived of the resources and the attention that they really need and deserve. And that could look like almost anywhere? That could look like any low-income community in America or abroad because fundamentally most of us have seen this, this data People in low-income communities reach out to help each other more than people in high-income communities will reach out Mm -hmm. to help each other. And I think that sometimes people will ascribe to the hood all of these negative tropes while ignoring the positives. So I want people to think about this low-income community. Why do you think it's so bad? Why do you think it's scary? What services are in your community that are not in that community? It could be buses. It could be streetlights. It could be functional schools. It could be clinics. It could be access to medical care, right? Mm -hmm. All of those things, communities that are bad, usually your communities that don't have things like grocery stores. Mm -hmm. They don't have basic things that are present in higher income communities, but there's no reason for them not to be present there. Poor people buy food too. Mm -hmm. Right. On the subject of which, uh, one of the things that you write about in this book that I hadn't thought of from the perspective that you bring up is this typically white 
kind of proud of themselves, folks that uh, enact like a soda ban. Yes, maybe in a in a city because they want to try to keep those poor people off of that sugary drink. That's right. And 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 you talked about it in a way that I, had not occurred to me. Can you talk about that a little bit? I'm going to point out that people who back soda bans generally will say, "What's well, it protect kids' teeth?" If you want to protect kids and their health and their weight or their teeth or whatever, they bring up weight a lot too. Wouldn't you be more concerned with the lead in their water? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you be more concerned with the lack of grocery stores in their communities? If you were concerned about health, wouldn't your focus be on making the community healthy and not on taxing people with the lowest incomes for having something they enjoy? And also, for the record, as we saw in Flint, one of the few sources of clean, untainted water was in a soda can because the soda companies were getting lead-free water when the community was not. That's one of the things that I really treasure about this book is like thinking about policy in a way that is listening more broadly. It was, I mean, really helpful for me as somebody who was like, oh, sure, yeah, soda, we should tax, you know, no, like we should think about how this is represented across all communities in the country before we make a decision that's based on one particular community's view of how that functions. Well, especially because when we talk about soda and the amount of sugar in soda, we don't do that judging about Starbucks. Right, like a triple Frappuccino. (laughs) There is a Starbucks near our house where I swear to God that line never goes down. There are cars in line picking up whatever triple Frappuccino, unicorn Frappuccino, whatever they are, all day long. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, issue that you bring up in this book, Mickey, um, that you, you say is a feminist issue that might be surprising some people is gun violence. And, and and you tell this story of something that happened to you as a child that is just truly unbelievable. You were nearly shot to the point where the gun actually singed your bangs. You have to understand that I grew up in a neighborhood that is now being gentrified because of the University of Chicago. But a lot of violence that we think of when we're talking about Chicago and gun violence has been in Chicago all of my life. Right. We even can point to Parade Magazine articles about the open air drug market on the west side of Chicago. That is where most of that violence originates from. Mm. That's the thing. I'm like a lot of girls. I'm like a lot of girls from low income communities. And and really, if we want to keep it honest, from high income communities, because if you turn on TikTok lately, you're seeing a lot of kids process how it feels to be afraid to go back to school because now they've had months without having to worry about a school shooting. Mm. Right. But I grew up in a community where shooting happened. Could I tell you that it was good or healthy or any of those things? No. But I think that when we're talking about gun violence and we position it as being simply around boys and men, we're doing a real disservice to the women who are present, who are often victims of gun violence and the girls who are often victims of gun violence, but also who, like me, I was just walking out the door. I could have been a statistic. I just so happened not to be. Um, we're talking to Mickey Kendall. Her book is Hood Feminism, Notes on the Women that a Movement Forgot. By the way, this is Livewire Radio, if you're just tuning in. Um, what would you hope people would take away from this book? You know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I know is probably challenging for people, and particularly maybe white women who consider themselves feminist and would think of themselves as allies. Um, and And what would you like to see people do who have done harm but maybe didn't realize it and now feel a little called out by this book? So a couple things. If you can make amends, make amends. Some people you're not going to be able to get to accept your apology and you're just going to have to hold that. Then try not to do the same thing again. Let's like, let's start there. Right. And then from that, look at what you're doing and what policies you're supporting, what politicians you're supporting. Sometimes doing the right thing can be as simple as not backing people who are doing 
the wrong thing. It can be donating to better campaigns, following the lead of people already doing the work, right? Whether that is donating political campaigns or donating to violence intervention or bail funds or uh, mutual aid societies, right? If you have more than enough and the best you can do is put some money in the hat, put some money in the hat. If you have the ability to volunteer and not make it all about making yourself feel better, cool, do that. But speaking up for the right thing, even if it's sometimes a little risky, is really the transition from ally to accomplice. Mm -hmm. And in terms of being an accomplice, that's where you show up at the school board meeting and say, you know what? Our building doesn't need an extension, but that community school that's crumbling around their ears, they could use a new building. They could use funds. That could mean, you know, speaking up and not making cutesy little thumbs down gestures in Congress to vote against minimum wage increases. Mm. And instead, I don't know, supporting people getting paid enough to live on in the middle of a pandemic. great. (laughs) Like a wild idea. Yeah, right. I'm just curious, Mickey, your personal philosophy in how you move through the world when you're dealing with a group of people and a lot of different people in that group have different needs that need to be met. And sometimes it would seem that those needs could come into conflict with each other or it could be sort of zero sum. Uh, How do you navigate those worlds? Um, So I, I tend to aim for the lowest common denominator, right? Everybody needs to eat. Everybody needs good housing. Everybody needs a safe space, right? And you'd be amazed how many people in that conflicting room of needs don't actually have all of their needs met at the most basic levels, right? So that person who's really hyped up about, let's say they want their student loan debt forgiven, right? And someone says, well, but what about all these homeless people? Well, the person who's worried about their student loan debt is worried about becoming homeless and the homeless person is worried about being housed, right? So then we have to sit and have this conversation about how we can work together to meet the most basic need in the group. If someone has got something that's really outside the box, right, that's not on that Maslow's hierarchy of basic Hmm. needs, well, then that's when we have the conversation about what is it that you're pursuing, right? And what is it that you need and what do you think this group needs to provide for you? Because even though I am not an organizer and I am not good at organizing things, I am really good at getting people to stop and ask themselves, is this need the most urgent one in the room? Does it need to be met right now? That's great. You'd be amazed how many people will realize, oh, wait, I'm not worried about housing. I'm not worried about food. These people are. Mm. It's not that that all the needs shouldn't be met usually in that room. It's the order in which they should be met. I'm just wondering, this this book, you know, points out a lot of things that we need to do better on and, and that, you know, we are in a country that's in the middle of a pandemic and that has a lot of reckoning still to do around race and gender. Um, Is there something, though, that gives you hope? Oh, I absolutely am hopeful about some of the things we're seeing, right? I'm not going to I'm not going to give politicians a lot of flowers here, but I will say seeing that some of the legislation out of this administration does focus on poor people is a good sign. Seeing how many young people, right? And we're going to go with Generation Z and I know people are going to be like, "Well, they're so mean to millennials, but like, get over it. You'll be all right." <laughs> they're advocating for much a much better world in many places. Yeah. The other things I'm seeing is people start to realize, "Oh, those social safety nets that we thought we didn't need, we need them. We should support them and rebuild them." Does that mean that we are looking at a perfect smooth ride? Absolutely not. I would like to welcome you to American politics. Um, you're probably going to have to hold the politician accountable and maybe arrest a handful before it's over. But I, I do see some good things. I see people starting to engage not just with my work, but with the work of a lot of other people and starting to really think about 
those basic needs being met. Oddly enough, not that I want the pandemic to have happened or for anyone to have died. I think a lot of people seeing the different responses globally has made them realize how little they're getting for their tax dollars, right? We always hear Mm. about my tax dollars. Well, your tax dollars should have taken care of you during this. Yeah. Well, Mickey Kendall, this is a really fascinating book. And I have to say that it uh, it was challenging for me at times to read, but it also really made me think about the world differently. So thanks for writing it. And thanks for coming on the Livewire House Party. We appreciate you. Thank you for having me on. It was great to meet both of you. That was Mickey Kendall right here on Livewire. Her book, Hood Feminism, Notes from the Women a Movement Forgot, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We've got to take a quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be right back. Some music from Faye Webster in just a moment. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season, formerly known as Tea Chai Tay. Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest, and they make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, for 20% off at portaltea.co. Welcome back to LiveWire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, let's hear a tune, why don't we? Our next guest is, no exaggeration, one of my very favorites these days. Uh, And as it turns out, I'm not the only one. One of her songs was even chosen by President Barack Obama as one of his favorite songs of the year back in 2020. It's another example of him upstaging me, (laughs) Elena. It's fine. I'm confident I can take it. Her latest album is titled, I Know I'm Funny, Ha Ha. Let's take a listen to this. It's our chat and some music from Faye Webster, who joined us back in June. Faye Webster, welcome to LiveWire. Thanks for having me. I was telling you before we started recording that a couple years ago, my daughter and I were just on this long drive on a Sunday night, and we happened to turn on the satellite radio, and it was streaming your concert from Bonnaroo live. And it was so good, and it just turned me into an instant fan. That's sick. That's cool. What are the odds? I mean, it was meant to be. It was. Um, <laughs> your new album, I Know I'm Funny Haha, ha, is like a great title. Thank you. What's the story on that? Really? It was just like a thought that turned into a lyric that turned into a song title that turned into the album name. But I wasn't originally going to call that. I was just like playing around with lyrics and like trying to come up with something and... I work with my brother. He does like a lot of graphic design and just helps me with my projects. And he's just like, why aren't you naming it? I know I'm funny, hmm. haha. <laughs> I was like, I don't know. Maybe I should just do that. Uh, well, we're going to hear a song off this new album. What are you going to play? Um, I'm going to play the first song on the record. It's called Better Distractions. Oh, this is a great track. I love this <laughs> song. All right, this is Faye Webster on the Live Wire House Party. Till I find something better to spend my time But nothing's appealing 
really less I long for me to realize I'm still alone You're not with me Wonder what's inside your mind But you seem pretty occupied So how you it Change the name, make it my own. Will you, will you, will you, will you, will you, will you be with me? Will you, will you, will you, will you, will you, will you be with me? Try to eat, I try to sleep. Everything seems boring to me I don't know what to do Got two friends that I could see But I got two jobs and a baby I just wanna see you Depending on the time apart The better that distractions are And there isn't a lot Took a couple times without you here to realize But I figured it out Thank you so much for coming on the Live Wire House Party. Thank you for having me. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking to our dear friend, the comedian Paul F. Tompkins, who traveled all the way up to Portland to be a part of our live show at Revolution Hall, which was a blast. Uh, he's going to talk about a variety of topics, including the podcast that he started with his wife during the pandemic and also his um Let's just say extremely complicated feelings around live Christmas carol performers at Scottish steakhouses in L.A. (laughs) Say that one five times fast. We're also going to be talking to media critic Sarah Marshall from the critically acclaimed podcast You're Wrong About, which kind of looks at how there are these big news stories and, uh, and, and, and people in the news, and we develop our opinions about them and what we think actually happened. It turns out we're wrong about it a lot of the time. Uh, We're also going to be hearing some new music from the blues artist Buffalo Nichols. And as always, of course, we're going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the live wire listeners for next week's show? Okay, what's a piece of pop culture, so a song, a film, even an artist, that you now realize that you were wrong about? So maybe you loved them and now you realize that they're super cheesy, or maybe you hated them and now you realize that they're actually kind of cool. Nice. If you have experience with that and you want to tell us about it, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. We are at LiveWire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, Connor Ratliff, Mickey Kendall, 
and Faye Webster. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our production director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Our assistant editor is Trey Hester. And Stephanie Moore is our social media manager. A. Walker Spring composes our music. Molly Pettit is our technical director and mixer. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Cultural Trust and the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. LiveWire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members the Sokoloff family of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank. For Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire team, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much if you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.